Now, if you brought your Bibles, you guys can please turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be there in just a second. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul gives us his version of the Christmas story. It's only four verses long, and we're going to unpack that for the next 25 or so minutes. And what's interesting about this passage of Scripture, especially if you're not a Bible person or maybe a bit of a Bible skeptic, is that it was written around 51, 52, or 53 A.D., And even those who are skeptical about the authority of Scripture pretty much all agree that it was the Apostle Paul who wrote this. This was written during the time right before Nero's death, and Paul was executed by Nero. And so there's really no arguing about when this was written, which means that it was written around 20 years after the crucifixion, or about 55 years after the birth of Jesus. The other thing that makes this interesting is that the Apostle Paul lived during the time of the people who knew Jesus. It's very likely that he met Mary, but even if he had never met Mary because she maybe passed away by then, he knew the apostle John who actually knew and took care of Mary, you know, Jesus' mother in her old age. So consequently, here's a guy who basically is looking back at the birth of Jesus. He's looking back at the life of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And now he's looking at that and he's giving us, you and me, his version of the Christmas story. But more specially, he is giving us what he sees as the significance of the Christmas story as it relates to you and me. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking primarily to a Roman and Greek audience, you know, not a Jewish audience, in the area of Galatia. And if you guys remember what we talked about last week, that this whole Christmas story, that throughout the scripture, we are told that essentially God had marked this event, you know, the birth of his son in his calendar. And that Christmas seemed to take forever. For centuries and centuries, the Jews waited for a Messiah. For centuries, the world waited for a savior. And so Paul writes in verse four, he says, but when the said time had fully come, because that's what Paul believed, God sent his son born of a woman. Now, don't rush by that too quickly. Remember, Paul lived in the first century and knew the people who spent time with Jesus. And after spending time with them and hearing their story and hearing directly from John and maybe even Mary herself, he comes to the conclusion that God sent the son who was born of a woman. Now, I know that most of you, if not all of you, have probably heard this story a thousand times, and we've come a little bit immune to it. It's almost like it doesn't really face us anymore. I mean, as romanticized as we've made this story, and as many times that we've seen this story and seen the manger scenes, that perhaps this becomes more of a kind of a far-off thing for us. It's almost like a cartoon with plastic characters or maybe even perfectly manicured people to make it look like more like us than the people actually looked back then. But for the apostle Paul to come to the conclusion that God actually had a son who came into this world, born of a woman, it's a big deal to them. That's something to pay attention to. But then he dips into the significance of the story and he goes on to say, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, the significance of that is that he says that Jesus was born under the law, which meant that when Jesus was born as a baby, he was accountable to the law, specifically the Mosaic law, you know, the Ten Commandments and all the rules and commandments that came along with that. And then he continues in verse 4, born under the law, which means he was accountable to the law to redeem those 
under the law. Now here's where it becomes a little more personal. When he uses the word those, he is addressing you and he is addressing me. And here's why we know that. Because throughout the scripture, we are presented with this idea that God has a law and that we've all broken it. That we're not very good law keepers. In fact, the truth is that we don't even keep our own laws very well, do we? I mean, how many Januaries have come and gone and you decided that you were going to set up some laws for yourself? You know what I'm talking about, the dieting laws and the exercise laws? Nobody imposed those laws on you. You came up with those own laws on your own and then you broke them, right? Well, some of you broke them, right? I mean, some of you have broken parenting laws that you've set up for yourself. Some of you have broken some marriage laws that you've established for yourselves. Some of you have broken some honesty laws that you've established for yourselves. The point is that we're all lawbreakers. And not only have we broken the law of God, but we've broken our own laws. So we're born under the law. You know, we know what's right and what's wrong. Those of us who are Christian, you know that we look at the scripture as the authority for our lives. And for those of you who have not taken that step or never planned to take that step, well, there's laws that you've broken too. And when you break those laws, here's what happens. Here's what you're going to discover is that you will create a dead and a debtor relationship with the laws that you've broken. You create a dead debtor relationship with the person who established those laws for you. Even when you agree or you disagree with the law. As an example, most of us probably agree with the speed limit law, right? We all believe that there should be a speed limit. And yet we've all broken it. You guys want to say amen to that? Just me? I'm the only one that's broken that law? Nobody else? Really? Come on. I mean, and sometimes you kind of look in the rear view mirror and there's somebody there to remind you that you've broken that law. That's when you'll really know. The interesting thing about that dynamic is that you agreed with the law and yet you broke it. And suddenly the government or the city or the county, they come to you and they say, now we have a debt and a debtor relationship. You've broken our law and now you owe us. And that dynamic, folks, is true between husband and wives, between children and their parents, employers and employees, that throughout our lives, we experience this sense in which we broke a law and now we owe someone. I mean, perhaps you're here today and you feel like your parents owe you. Or maybe that your father owes you a childhood or that your father owes you an explanation for something or an education or that your father owes it to you to have been there when you were a child. You feel that he sinned against you, that he offended you, that he broke the law of the father or the law of parenting. Or maybe you're on the other side of that. You have children somewhere in this world that are estranged from you. And if I were to hear their story, they would tell me, you know what, he or she owes me a childhood. They owe it to me to be there for me. You owe it to me to tuck me in at bed at night. You owe it to me to tell me stories. You owe it to me to have been there for my football games, my baseball games, soccer games, track meets. You owe it to me because when there is sin, when a law is broken, there is immediately a debt and a debtor relationship that's established. And we have all experienced that humanly. We've all experienced that in relationships. Well, the scripture teaches and Paul reaffirms that the same thing happens between God and us. That when we break the law of God, there is a dead and a debtor relationship created. And here's what he said. That he redeemed those. And the word redeem means to buy back, 
to pay for, to trade. I mean, it can mean several things, but that Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. That means you and me. Which means, and this is the entire gospel message, folks. This is a thing that lit up the first century. This is a message that spread almost all the way around the world. That when Jesus came and died on the cross, it was the payment for the sin that we had committed. And that by paying for our sin, that debt that we owe to God, that we could not pay back. Now, if that's kind of a strange concept for you, let's face it, you owe some people some things relationally that you can't pay back either, right? I mean, you can't go back to your first marriage and be the kind of father or mother that you should have been to your kids. It's impossible. You can't go back to be a teenager again, to be the kind of teenager that your parents deserved. I mean, perhaps you were rebelled or you were a prodigal child. You can't go back and give them the peace that your parents deserved because they were good parents. I mean, there are times that we owe people things that we can't, we cannot pay back. And in a similar way, the scripture teaches that when we broke the law of God, there is no way for us to pay God back. We can't go back and undo what we've done. And all of the promises that we make in the world will leave us falling short. The scripture teaches that when Jesus came into this world and died on the cross, that he redeemed us from that law. That law could no longer condemn us because even though we were lawbreakers, God and Jesus sort of stood together as judge and jury and said, even though you're absolutely guilty, you don't owe us anymore. When Jesus died, he paid for that sin. Now, I know that's not news for most of us. In fact, even if you're not really a church person or a Christian, that's not news for you either. But you see, that's only the beginning. Because all of that redeemed terminology, you know, it's kind of judicial. It's, it's a legal term. It's transactional. It says like, I owe you. Now I'm not going to owe you anymore. I owe God. God decides he's going to forgive me. It's somewhat transactional. It leaves God as judge. And I don't know about you. I mean, it almost makes me feel like I've gotten away with something that I shouldn't have gotten away with. It's a bit transactional and distant. Paul says that that's just a warm up. Because when God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, there was an even more significant purpose than simply saying to you and me, okay, you're forgiven, you don't get to go to hell, you can pray to me, and I'm okay with you. He said that it's deeper than that. And then he reaches into his own culture, and he looks for a word picture. That metaphor, that idea that really describes the significance of what happened when Jesus came into this world to redeem those who were under the law. I mean, and it's really hard for us to kind of grasp the metaphor that he's trying to use. And here's what he says in verse 5. He says, to redeem those under the law that we may receive adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. In other words, it's not enough from God's perspective that you're forgiven, that your debt is paid. God said, and Paul understood, I want more than that. I want a relationship with you. I can forgive someone and never have a relationship with them. In fact, as an example, you can go to court and the judge can look at you over the bench and say, you know what? You're guilty, but I'm going to give you another chance. You're free to go. And you're never going to have a relationship with that judge. Paul said that as I look at the birth of Jesus, as I reflect over the life of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and as I spend time with those who spend time with Jesus, 
I've come to discover that it's simply more than forgiveness. God wanted something else. He wanted a relationship with you. And he looks around his culture and he says, the best way to describe it is that God wanted to adopt you into his family. Now, in that culture, when he wrote that word adoption, when they, and they read that word adoption, they didn't think what we think. You know, when we think adoption, our minds immediately go to, to cute, beautiful babies maybe that need to be adopted or maybe third world countries where they have a significant problem with that. And I mean, adoptions are great. I mean, who in the world wouldn't want to adopt a beautiful, innocent little baby? But when I read this, here's a problem that I have. I'm not a beautiful little baby. I'm a grown-up. Now, here's what's cool about that, that in the first century Roman world, no one adopted babies because babies more than likely were going to pass away. And no one adopted toddlers because nobody knew what the toddler was going to turn out to be. In the Jewish world, there wasn't even a term for adoption. Jews didn't adopt at all. They had a completely different way of dealing with parentless children. In the Roman world, people adopted adults. Rich, wealthy, and powerful people adopted adults as children, and here's why. And this may give you guys some ideas. Because the rich and the power looked at their own children and thought, there is no way I'm leaving my stuff to them. <laughs> you know, the rich and the powerful looked at their own spoiled children and thought, there's no way they can be trusted with my titles, with my land, with my wealth. And if they had any political influence, they looked at their own children and thought, they can't be trusted. And so it was very, very common in the Roman world that you never adopted a baby and hardly ever adopted a, a child. You adopted adults. In fact, if you guys may remember this from your ancient history class, that when Julius Caesar, after he was assassinated, they read his will. And in his will, he had adopted Octavian. Basically, his grandnephew, who was 19 years old at the time, so Octavian gets the news, and here's what they tell him. Hey, I've got some good news for you. You know your great uncle? Well, he adopted you, and you now have all of Julius Caesar's titles and all of his land and all of his wealth. I mean, that was a good day for Octavian, wasn't it? Now, Octavian went on to become Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor during the birth of Jesus. Caesar Augustus, as he got older and older, he looked around. He had a daughter, and he couldn't leave everything to her. And then he had some grandchildren by her. And so as they got older, he adopted his grandchildren, you know, just in case he wanted to leave them with his will, I mean, in his will to inherit his titles. Then he ended up doing something really strange. He ended up adopting his wife's son from a previous marriage, a man named Tiberius. And Tiberius, catch this, was 40 years old when he was adopted by Caesar Augustus. 40 years old. And ultimately, Tiberius became the next emperor. He was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. And then Caesar Augustus did something even more strange. When they read his will, he had actually adopted his wife in his will so that she could be co-regent with her son from a previous marriage because he was trying to control the future, so he adopted his wife. Folks, that's just how they viewed adoption. And I guess the bottom line is this for you guys today. If you're here and you are a person of great wealth or you have a significant resources and you don't trust your children, I'm open to adoption. That's the bottom line. I'll manage your wealth. I'm just kidding. Maybe just a little bit. But the point is this, that, that when Paul wrote this and his adult and teenage and senior audience read this word, this meant something significant to them. 
It meant that God looked at us as adults with all of our faults and all of our failures and with all of our sin, knowing that in the Roman world, no one in their right mind would adopt us because we're not worth adopting by anyone of great means. At least I'm not. We're not worth being adopted by someone who is emperor. We're not worth being adopted by somebody who has great political aspirations for us. We fall short of that. And Paul said that when he looked at you, when God looked at you, he decided to adopt you. Knowing everything you had done, everything you would do, and all of the promises that not only you broke to yourself, but the promises that you broke to others, and the promises that you broke to your heavenly father. That if you, if you are a believer, have been adopted. And if you're not a believer, well, that invitation is open to you. Not simply to be forgiven by God, not simply to have things made right with God, but to be adopted into the family of God. I'm telling you, as the Galatians read this, and as they wrote this down, and as they passed this letter around to each other, this was staggering to them. It took it to a completely different level. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 6, because you are his sons. And of course, he could have said his children, like his sons and his daughters. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now, this is huge. In fact, if you are taking a little nap, this is probably the time that you should wake up. This is where it gets important. Because this is unbelievable. Because we are related to God. The Bible says, and Paul says, that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, has inhabited your heart. He says, this is what connects you relationally to God. And God, through his spirit, has invited you. And now this is almost impossible for the Galatians readers to comprehend. And it was certainly difficult for Jesus' disciples to fully comprehend. He says, there is a spirit inside of you that calls out, Abba, Father. Now, let me tell you about this little word right here. Abba is actually an Aramaic word, and it literally means daddy. And maybe you've heard this before. And when they wrote the New Testament in Greek, they got to this word Abba, and they realized in the ancient Greek language that there was no Greek equivalent. There was a Greek term for father, but a Greek term for daddy, they couldn't find one. So they just left the Aramaic word there, and then they added the word father for those of the people that wouldn't be able to understand what that word meant. So essentially, they have the same word in there twice. But this word is of such extraordinary intimacy that they couldn't find an equivalent for in the Greek language. I mean, it is so significant and extraordinary that, let me give you the example of that. You guys remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? You guys remember the scene? Jesus is on his knees. It's the night that he's going to be betrayed. And he's eventually he's going to be arrested and crucified. And he's on his knees praying. And what does he pray? He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. The word he uses here is that word, Abba. It is as if he is saying when he prayed in that intimate, tender moment. And, you know, he is the first person to have ever used this term as it relates to God. Because there's no record of this before Jesus. He said, Tad. Dad, don't let this happen to me. Daddy, let this cup pass from me. Let me somehow be able to escape this. And as the apostle Paul heard this, Jesus, their savior, their Lord, their leader, their Messiah, 
address God in these intimate terms, it had to be so uncomfortable. But it was so significant that they used the word. And the Apostle Paul, writing 20 years after the crucifixion, he says to his audience, to his non-Jewish Greek and Roman audience, meaning to us, he said that the Spirit of God has inhabited you, and now you can relate to him not, not simply as forgiver or judge, or not simply as master, but father. And not just father, but Abba Father. You know, it, it's a bit like the word taco, just to get you guys back on something you guys can relate to. You guys know that the word taco is a Mexican-Spanish word for a certain kind of food. We all know what it is. It's delicious, right? And when they started serving those in the United States, there was no English equivalent. So they just took that word and they put it into the English language. And that's why if you have friends and they, you know, they speak Spanish and you hear the word talk, you say, hey, I understand the word. I speak Spanish now too. That's why you think that. Well, there was no equivalent for the word Abba in the Greek language. And so they just left it in the Greek New Testament and it has been passed on to the English. Now, if it were to be translated into English, it would be daddy or dad. Now, this is important because if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, that is the level of intimacy that you have been invited to with your heavenly Father. Father, Abba, Daddy. And as Paul thinks about Christmas, God's son, born of a woman, he realizes that this is where it would ultimately lead to. So he concludes in verse 7, So you are no longer slaves. I mean, why does he use the word slave here? Because in a slave relationship, it's all about the rules, isn't it? I mean, they tell you, here's the five things you can do. Here's the four things you shouldn't do. Here's the two places you shouldn't go. And here's what happens if you go there. Here's what happens if you break the rules. And here's what happens if you don't submit to me. He said, you are no longer slaves. In other words, you are no longer relating to God through the law. You've been redeemed from the law. You are no longer relating to God as tax master, as a judge, as a rule keeper, because you are no longer slaves. In any language or in any prayer or in any attitude that you have towards God that reflects slavery, dictator, or judge, he says you need to move past that. Folks, Christmas is about moving past that. You are God's children and have been invited to follow the example of your Savior and address your heavenly Father, as uncomfortable as it may be for you, as Dad, as Daddy, as Abba Father. And the bottom line is this, that you, that we, that us, you are no longer to relate to God as a lawgiver, but as Father. You are no longer to look at God through the lens of what you've done, but who you are. You are his child. That essentially the message of Christmas is this, that God sent his son so that you could become not simply forgiven, but his child. And now you're at that intimate level with God and you can call him daddy. You know, the French poet who penned the words to the song that we sang this morning, Oh, Holy Night, he really got it right. He wrote, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Now, I've always wondered what that word pining means. It means to, to long, to wait, but with a longing. And he says, till he appeared. And then we've all sung this next line a thousand times. But maybe, 
just maybe for the first time, the true significance of this verse will dawn on you, where he says, and the soul felt its worth. Father, adopted, daddy. Now, I don't know what you think you're worth to God. I don't know how you view God. I don't know how you pray. You may still pray as a slave. You may still pray as a lawkeeper. You may still pray to a judge. You may still barter with God. You know when we say things like, you know, I, God, I did this this weekend, so I'm going to go an extra three weekends to church to make up for that. Or God, when I was 16, I did, I messed up so bad that now that I'm 26, I'm going to do these things to make up for that. Or you say this last weekend, I used profanity, God, with my non-church friends, so I'm going to pray extra long today to make up for that. But if you're still bartering with God, did you know that you're still relating to God as a slave? Did you know that you're still relating to God as a lawkeeper and a lawbreaker? Did you know that you're still transactional with God? But folks, that's not what Christmas is about. Do you know that God has invited you into something far more powerful? That he's saying, look, we're done with that. You don't have to come to me that way. You just have to be real. You don't have to look at me through the lens of what you've done or haven't done. You are my child and I am your Abba Father. And that is the foundation of our relationship. He says, you want to know what you're worth to me? You are worth far more than every adopted child that has ever been adopted by a human being all put together because I adopted you not as an innocent, beautiful little baby, I adopted you as a sinning teenager, college student, single, married, or senior adult. I adopted you knowing, and I've invited you into a relationship characterized by Abba Father. Christmas is about God sending His Son so that we could become His children. Do you want to know what you're worth to God? You are worth Christmas. All of you are worth Christmas. Here's what you're worth to God. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Because you are his children, for those of you that have said yes, I know that not all of us have said yes, but for those of you who have said yes, because you are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba Father, so you are no longer slaves. And since you are his children, he has made you heirs, heirs of his kingdom, heirs of eternal life. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It is to me. But as I think about this and as I studied this, this was so amazing up in here. It kind of rocked my world and my brain. But you know, if it ever gets down to here, our hearts, it'll wreck our life in every positive sense of the word. If it ever goes from a theological theory to an emotional reality, it will change the way you pray. It will change the way you respond to temptation. It will change the way you respond to your own failure when faced with temptation. It will change the way you view the people around you. It will change the way you view yourself. And regardless of what other people had said to you, or said about you, or the way they treated you, it will transition you. It will radically change your sense of worth. 
Because you want to know what you're worth? You are worth Christmas. Now, I know that some of you here this morning are still trying to get it from here to here. And some of you haven't even said yes yet. Some of you have not agreed to your adoption, but the invitation is there. And maybe for the first time you've really understood that. There's no better season than I can think of than to say yes to an invitation that to be adopted as a child of God than Christmas, because Christmas is what you're worth. So I want to end our time together this morning by giving you an opportunity to simply say yes. God, I'm getting in the car with you this morning or this afternoon. It's still morning. I'm getting in the car with you and I'm driving home. God, I'm leaving this life of law-keeping and law-breaking to have a completely different kind of relationship with you. I mean, for some of you, you've been easing up until this moment. You've been coming to church for a while and you've been reading your Bible But there's never been a moment where you said, Father, I'm going to take it from here to here. And if that's you, then I encourage you to say yes to that invitation today, to become a child of God and to be in terms with your heavenly Father as Abba, as Daddy, as Abba Father. Or if it's never been that moment because you've never accepted Christ, I want to give you an opportunity for that right now. I want to lead you in a prayer, and this prayer is just an expression by which you are going to say yes to God. I want that. I believe that. And when you say yes, and when you place your faith in Christ, the Bible says that you're born again, or as Paul would say, you will be adopted into the family of God. And if you're not sure if you've ever made that decision, I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision right now. Even if you can say, hey, listen, Carlos, I still have a million questions that you've never really addressed. Here's what I want to say to you. The invitation remains open because Christmas was for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for your word, Lord. Lord, as your word speaks into our hearts and into our minds, Lord, I just pray that you are ministering and touching hearts right now. And if there's anyone here that wants to accept this invitation for the first time, I want you to, in your heart, I'm not going to embarrass you, just in your heart, right where you're at, just where you're sitting down, just repeat this prayer after me and say, Heavenly Father, I believe you have invited me to be adopted as your child. To consider you my Heavenly Father, I place my trust on what Christ did for me on the cross. I believe that he died for me and I have been purchased and redeemed and forgiven. In this moment, Father, I say yes. Receive me into your family and become my Abba Father. And if there's some of you here this morning that haven't made the transition from the word of God going from knowledge in your mind into your hearts, repeat this prayer after me if you want to make that commitment. Heavenly Father, I understand maybe for the first time, Lord, that you want to have a relationship with me. Not just to forgive me, Father, but to be in an intimate level where I can call you Daddy. Father, help me to plant that word in my heart and that it would make a difference as I walk out of these doors to be a different person, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, Father, because I now know you not just as Father, but Abba, Father. Father, help me to live a life that is worthy of what you're asking me to do the best way that I know how. And Heavenly Father and I pray for all of us this morning. That as we go through this season, this Christmas season, and as we get ready for all of the Christmas presents and all of the turkey and all of the food, Father, 
Lord, I just pray that it would be about you. Father, that it would sink in that Christmas is about us. We love you this morning. And we pray all of these in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.